This is an episode about the power of language, among other things. It's an episode about how certain words have, over time, become so freighted with meaning that they tend to obliterate all other context. These words get deployed tactically, dropped into the middle of a press release or a press conference or a public debate, and the intent isn't just to offer a fact. The intent is to explode. Explode with meaning in such a way that all other context is like obliterated or at least obscured. They're like bombs. The intent is to knock people back, to put the bomb thrower on the offensive. So I'm queuing up what's going to be a pretty lengthy interview with a person who was arrested a few weeks ago under what the media and most people that sort of heard about it thought were spurious circumstances, a little sketchy, like why was this guy being arrested in the first place? And the level and tenor of backlash at his arrest, I think, put the people who arrested him on their back heels a little bit. And so in order to regain their footing, regain the high ground, regain the offensive position, they decided to throw one of those bombs. A bomb that was decided to explode in such a way that all of those criticisms of their actions would be obscured with the power of this singular word. The bomb thrower was Sheriff Ozzy Knezovich. The bomb was the word felon. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 15, Chain Gang Reaction. So you've probably already heard this story in in one version or another, because I think everybody who listens to this pod is a smart, talented, engaged news consumer. But in case you didn't, here's the rundown. Back in late August, a group of men in plain clothes, including one reportedly dressed up as a homeless person grabbed a local activist named Jeremy Logan and threw him in the back of a van. Jeremy had made some less than tactful social media posts, but he wasn't being arrested for those. He wasn't being arrested for violence or agitation at any of the protests either. He hadn't even gotten to that day's protest yet. Sheriff's deputies intercepted him on his way to the protest, probably about a quarter mile away, if not a little bit more. He was arrested on a seven-year-old warrant issued by Douglas County for unpaid fines. And over the years, Douglas County had twice told Spokane law enforcement they had no interest in extraditing Jeremy for something as minor as fines. But on that day, for whatever reason, in August 2020, deputies picked him up anyway. Jeremy's friends saw what happened, what looked like an abduction, and immediately lit up social media, reaching out to anybody they could think of for help. And because Jeremy is the co-chair of the Spokane Democratic Socialists of America, those cries on social media reached national organizers, the national media, and then eventually worked their way back to the local news. This was during the peak, just for context, the peak of those unmarked federal agents rounding up and detaining protesters in Portland, and also in the middle of fear that unmarked agents like this might give extremist groups an idea to do a little kidnapping themselves. It's like, if all it takes is you putting on like a polo shirt and some cargo pants and rounding up left-wing protesters, like what's to stop anybody from doing that, right? So these activists were concerned for their friend and they reached out and all of a sudden this becomes a much bigger deal than I'm sure the sheriff's department planned for. And so when reporters pressed the sheriff for why his department had gone out of their way, spent taxpayer money, dressed up like homeless people, and snatched this guy on a seven-year-old warrant the issuing jurisdiction didn't care about, 
Ozzy decided to throw a bomb. He was a convicted felon with a warrant. I know there it doesn't sound like he was throwing a bomb. It sounds like he maybe took too much children's NyQuil before uh, having a press conference. But that's what the intent, right? Hey, it might seem like we just arrested this guy for no reason for a warrant that nobody wants him on. But he's a felon. Doesn't matter if he's committed any crimes recently. He has at the past in some point been convicted of what we call a felony. Therefore, we are protecting you from him. And he uses the word felon very purposefully to soften you up for what comes next, which is a bunch of allegations that the sheriff's department had already determined were not actionable, not actual crimes, but that he's still going to pile up here in this press conference to make it seem like the arrest was justified, even if it was a waste of money that was in literally no one's best interest. So here's the full quote. He was a convicted felon with a warrant. And yes, he knew he had the warrant. And yes, he had been contacted before and they said, you might want to get this taken care of. But he also upped the ante by making threats. And his rhetoric was increasingly violent. Not exactly an Oscar-worthy performance. It's almost like you can hear him in real time saying, this sounds like bullshit. <laughs> like he spent his entire weekend furiously drawing up this PowerPoint, and when it's clear that the media in the room aren't like exactly buying it, he's like, oh. And that's really the way this entire 42-minute press conference goes. So he goes into all this detail that's not actionable, including not just Jeremy's political activities, which are protected speech, but all these other completely unrelated Antifa-related things in Washington, D.C. and in, down in California and Seattle and Portland, just trying to make this absolute house of cards case that Jeremy's nonviolent protesting is part of some massive socialist plot. It's absolutely unhinged. And he chooses to completely leave out relevant information like the fact that this warrant was for unpaid fines. And the reason Jeremy did not pay the fines he had was that he was literally homeless at the time of his arrest and was rebuilding his life and couldn't afford to pay Douglas County's fine structure. It's a little ironic Jeremy Logan used to be homeless because it's pretty clear that for the last month and change, he's been living rent-free inside of Ozzy's head. But we will get to all of that. So just a couple more things before we start the interview. This press conference was so unhinged that I actually tried to do a live uh, reading critique of it, and it would have been a two-hour episode. The 25 minutes of his main comments, and then he did Q&A afterwards, the 25 minutes of his main comments, it took me two hours to get through just dunking on how ridiculous his rhetoric is and his logic. He says that it's not a political arrest. It was arrest of a man who had a warrant. It's not political. It's not political. It's not political. But then he spends literally 20 minutes banging the drum against Antifa and doing things like pointing out that Jeremy Logan went and saw Chop in Seattle, the Capitol Hill ongoing protest, also called CHAZ, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. And Mr. Logan, Mr. Logan over in CHOP, CHAZ, whatever you want to call it, the Seattle People's Building right here. Oh, by the way, uh, there are people that want to have a spaz. That would be the Spokane Autonomous Zone. Kind of seems like Spokane already has a spaz, eh, folks? Being treated to a spaz in the form of this low-energy temper tantrum the sheriff's having. Last thing, and then we'll get to the interview. He also, as an aside, says that in his opinion, race relations has devolved in the last 50 years since a pretty key event in recent American history. Listen to this. We have taken ourselves back 50 years politically, rhetoric-wise, and racial relations. 50 years. Uh, you hear it today, race wars and everything else. 50 years ago, we had gone so far and we have devolved in one summer. Well, actually, it wasn't one summer. It was 2014 on. We started devolving. 
Sorry, what, what was 2014 specifically? It would be Ferguson, Ferguson there, Daniel. Race relations have, quote, devolved since, quote, 2014 on. And then you hear that's uh, Inlander reporter Daniel Walter saying, sorry, what, what happened in 2014? And he's like, Ferguson, you fucking idiot. So let's be really clear about what's happening here. He is setting himself up on the other side of protesters who were protesting the fatal shooting of Michael Brown by police officer Darren Wilson. He's saying things were going great in our country for all of us, black people, white people, everybody, until they got all uppity in St. Louis. And those protests in St. Louis somehow make us less safe in Spokane, Washington. So yeah, like I said, 25-minute press conference took me two hours of just gnashed teeth screaming into this microphone to get through all, I probably missed some, just some fraction of the bullshit in this press conference. And then I decided to not subject you to that. <laughs> but uh, I did think it was important to highlight the absolute lowest of the lowlights in many, many lowlights of what happened to Jeremy, which we're about to talk about, and then the sheriff's just absolute jazz odyssey of bullshit trying to defend it. All right, Jeremy Logan, coming up. Uh, so two episodes ago, I was giddy at getting what I thought to that point in range was the biggest interview we'd ever had. Leah Satilli, journalist of the far right and newly bylined in the uh, New York Times Magazine. I'm going to be honest, I didn't know how I was going to top that. But then the gods smiled, and today I'm sitting down with none other than Jeremy Logan, the uh, CEO of Antifa. Thank you so much for being on. <laughs> I, I prefer the title of King. King of Antifa. I, I, I like to see... Uh, Antifa as a monarchy rather than a uh, corporation. Right. Yeah. A, a, a divine right of kings sort of situation. Yeah. I've never, I've never interviewed a monarch before, so this is cool. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm actually, there's two ladies here feeding me grapes right now. So I'll, we'll make, I'll make sure to give you time to pause and I can always edit that out if I, there's too much, you know, grape noise in the, in the mic. Oh, that's good. 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 <laughs> All right, Jeremy. So you've been an activist in Spokane for a while I first heard your name a couple of years ago when you helped organize people against a landlord who your landlord uh, doubled rents in your building basically overnight. I want to talk about that stuff in turn and especially like the role poverty has has played in your life since it seems like you were pretty young. Uh, but you've also been very active as a member of Spokane's chapter of the DSA and you're currently the co-chair of Spokane DSA. Yeah. And you're also a business yeah. owner, small business owner. You have a, a painting company you started uh, after moving to Spokane and, and going back to school. Yeah. And I always qualify that by saying that um, while I do own a business, I, I don't hire labor. So I okay. avoid exploiting labor. And when I have hired anybody, uh, I split the labor cost with them. So I oh, can be, really cool. have a clean conscience. <laughs> and and But you are one of those uh, dang bootstrap stories people love talking about. You got that American dream going real good. So uh I wouldn't say you have like a massive public profile, but you've been in the news a decent amount and you get called by the media with a decent amount of frequency. You were just quoted in the Inland, before all this went down, you were quoted in the Inlander uh, for an article about Antifa and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I knew of you as a lot more than what our sheriff called you in his press conference on September 8th, which was just quote a felon with a felony warrant. So I was wondering who, if we could just. Who has, done, who has done nothing. <laughs> yeah, someone who's done. Uh, yeah, felon with a felony warrant who has done nothing. So I thought we could maybe start right there, since like law enforcement and our criminal legal system just wants to condense your entire life into the word felon. 
I wanted to chat, maybe just start there if you're, if you're comfy with it. What did you get arrested for in Douglas County in the first place? And I want to talk about the legal financial obligations that led to the warrant after that. But what, like, what did you do to just like land in jail? The short story is that I got busted for possession of heroin. Um, all of my re- arrests as an adult were victimless crimes. They were things like being irresponsible and not paying fines that I either couldn't afford to or forgot about or, you know, I didn't, I didn't check my mail regularly or anything. You know, when your life is kind of shit, like it's harder to pay attention to things and, and care about things right. because uh, you know that all your best efforts don't really get you anywhere anyway. Yeah. And that's kind of what led me to my addiction. Like I already, you know, you could say I had a problem with alcohol and everything. Um, I wasn't like a day drinker or anything like that, but uh, you know, I, I drank regularly and re- recreationally took drugs. And then I broke my hip and um, I got pain pills and I really enjoyed pain pills. So it gave me an excuse to kind of sit and just watch uh, TV on DVD and, and take pain pills. <laughs> and uh, by the time that was done, I, I had a, I reached a moment where I, I kept trying to get clean and I couldn't. So we're talking about like you were on like Oxy or something? Uh, just, just, uh, Percocets. So Percocet, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I got to a point, I was reading a lot of like Hunter S Thompson and William Burroughs, <laughs> which are <laughs> like the greatest, uh, thought leaders in the world. Yeah. So role models for getting, for being clean. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I, I remember at one point just being so fascinated by their ability, at least the way they wrote about it was um, that like, yeah, this is just how I live my life and this is what goes on and it's crazy and it's insane and I'm just going to go and do whatever I want and I'm not going to like sit and cry about it. Right. And I kind of use that to my advantage also with a combination of, I had read a bunch of books by Albert Ellis who uh, created rationally motive behavioral therapy, which led to cognitive behavioral therapy, which is like the most used, uh, psychotherapy there is now. Right. And, um, and so I kind of trained my mind to not, uh, get super upset about things. And I thought, you know, I still, I can't, you know, at this point, I think I was 29 years old and I thought I can't get it together. Everything I've tried, uh, all the effort that I've put in just like strenuous effort to get out of poverty and find my way out just seemed impossible because I was always hit with other fines and going to jail for not paying fines and it, uh, okay. driving a car, you know, was illegal for me. And uh, I was just so frustrated. And I remember thinking like, uh, I, I just, going to burn it down and, and see what happens from there. And either I'll, I'll, I'll die out there or, um, you know, I'll destroy everything and start over because trying to hold on to what little I have right now, isn't going to do it. And that kind of led me into deep, deep addiction. Wow. And you were in, did you live in Wenatchee or East Wenatchee or did you live in Douglas County or were you in Chelan? I lived, um, I lived back and forth from Seattle, to Douglas County and Chelan okay. County. And so you, and you got busted for, uh, using or selling or what? No, I, I, um, I had quit selling because, uh, you know, it, it had gotten to a point where a lot of people around me were getting arrested and some friends of mine were like, Hey, the, the cops were asking about you specifically. 
Oh, wow. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm just going to not do this because so then I had to find another way, uh, to survive and and it just ended up being like stealing from walmart <laughs> because it's walmart i mean they've stolen wealth from small towns all across america so i really don't care about them or feel bad about it but yeah so that's kind of what i did for a year or so and then um and then i just got picked up at a sherry's because i was sitting in the sherry's and the waitress came up to me and said you have one hour and then you have to leave. And I was like, okay, it's because I look poor. <laughs> yeah. And at this point I was poor. I was really poor. Yeah. And, um, and that when the hour was up, uh, some cops came in and she told them, and, and I had a warrant for like a probation violation because I didn't go get, I, I was court mandated to go get an HIV test because I was arrested with a needle. Oh, wow. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, they, court mandated me to get an HIV test. Oh, wow. So you were, you were picked up for a warrant because you had not done that. Yeah. And I had heroin on me and they didn't discover it until I was in, uh, intake. Wow. Yeah. So then I got, I got a possession of heroin charge. And so how long were you in jail for on that charge? Uh, two months. Okay. And then I got out and had to do a mandatory three months in a treatment center. Okay. And then a year of probation, what they basically do is if you get a drug charge and you go through treatment, the treatment writes your probation for you, basically. So whatever the, the treatment center recommends is what you have to follow. And I went to Spark Treatment Center, which is Spokane. Oh, I, I, I forget what the acronym is, but it's a recovery treatment center in um, Spokane. Okay. So you got out of jail in Douglas County. And went to treatment in Spokane. That's when you moved to Spokane was then. Yeah, because I didn't have an address. And my dad just gave them my aunt's address in Spokane to get me out of Wenatchee. Yeah. Didn't want me to go back to Seattle. Didn't want me to be in Wenatchee. And I'd never spent any time in Spokane. So I didn't know anybody here or anything. Wow. And uh, so it, it, it worked out. <laughs> um, because also after I got out of treatment, like they had a... Um, kind of like a halfway house type of place. And I wanted to stay there and you can only stay there if you had a Spokane address before you got clean. So other people that are trying to relocate, um, I've seen them have to go to shelters and everything because they don't want to go back to Tri-Cities or Wenatchee or wherever. wherever. Yeah. Because there's nothing there for them. It's all bad. Wow. And um, I was lucky because we had given the Spokane address. So I was able to transition here. When you ended up in Spokane, how, what sort of legal financial obligations did you leave with, leave jail with? So when you, when you first go through the probation, you don't really, you don't have to pay the legal financial obligations yet. And I had been recommended to do five outpatient intensive outpatient meetings a week, plus five or seven AA meetings a week. Wow. So it's kind of like a, you're like a, you're like a full, your recovery is like a full-time job at that point for you. (laughs) Yeah. And I was supposed, I was supposed to find a job. And I was lucky I had a, a decent human being for a p- probation officer. And he was like, yeah, obviously, you know, you can't get a job. <laughs> and uh, not that I could have held one anyways, you know, and, and it, and a lot of times you get fired from your job, that's a probation violation. And trying to, you know, I had a very serious heroin habit and it, it really like getting clean, the depression and, my cognitive function just wasn't there. 
And it took like a year and a half before I felt like a real human being. And um, yeah. And so it, it was just really difficult. So the fact that people can get a probation violation and get sent back to prison and everything because they uh, don't hold a job correctly, <laughs> especially after the years of being in prison or, or, you know, just trying to function on that level. It's a very difficult thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So when I completed my uh, probation, I was just starting school and I was living on student loans and I, okay. I got the completion of DOC. I did everything without a single violation with insane instructions, you know, <laughs> and I did it all. I completed everything, no violations. And then they hit me with like, I, I'm guessing it's like $3,000 financial obligations. Wow. And they called me and said, you need to pay these. And I said, well, I, I don't have any money. I just moved into my first place by myself and I just started school and I'm living on student loans. And they said, well, you, you have to pay it. And I said, I could do like $25 a month maybe. And they said, that's not going to be enough. And I said, but well, I don't know what else to do. I said, maybe 50. And they were like, nope. Wow. And I said, well, uh, I can't do more than that. And they said, well, we're going to have to issue a warrant for your arrest. And I said, all right, I guess come and get me when you d- decide you want me. And uh, so two, two quick things there, like yeah, 3000 bucks is a lot of money. But to, you said to you at that time, it seemed like it might as well have $3 million. The number seemed so... It was so astronomical for somebody to, like, I basically, after I paid my rent, I had $300 a month to live on. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, I don't even know how I did it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I actually, eventually I moved in with, with the girl I was dating at the time and, and that's probably how I made it. Um, right. When one of us wasn't doing well, the other person was doing well. So <laughs> we yeah, just managed yeah. to get through. We just made it through some very tough times. And it's important. Yeah. So you were, and you were going to school, which is like one of the few ways that you're, you, like people can rebuild their lives in this country. Right. Like, yeah. And one of the ways you're we're told to, right. One of the ways we're told to be like, okay, you gotta, you know, get your shit together, go to school, like learn a trade, whatever. Right. <laughs> exactly. And, and I, uh, I had a seventh grade education before that. I mean, I had my GED, but I never studied for it or anything. I just went and took the test you know, right. I learned how to write an essay and then I just went and took the test. Wow. And, um, I mean, and you're reading, you're reading Burroughs. Uh, so you're not dumb, but right. you <laughs> have a great education. Yeah. I was a reader and luckily most of the GED test is reading comprehension. Yeah. And because I was trained to read either as a, I mean, I always read even as a, a young kid. Um, yeah. Uh, but then, you know, all the time I spent locked up as a kid, which was, uh, almost two years. Um, I, I, you know, read like four or five books a week. Wow. <laughs> nothing else yeah, to do. There's nothing else to do. Yeah. And I think I heard, or I was, I was going, when I was doing research for this episode, I, I was reminded that, um, legal financial obligations have a state mandate until very recently. I think this has actually changed and it's good that it's changed because these, these LFOs are awful, but in addition to just having $3,000 that you have to come up with out of thin air, you know, as a person <laughs> who's going to school in treatment recently out of jail and relocated to a completely new city, LFOs until very recently had a state mandated interest rate of 12%. Uh, it's like not quite like credit card level, but 
Way worse than mortgage, mortgage rates. One, it's illegal to be poor. Two, yeah. once they have you in the system, they want to keep you there. It's a way of controlling the disruptive uh, working class. I mean, yeah. if, if you don't fall, if you don't play along and make somebody money, society has no interest in you, and they want to keep an eye on you and keep tabs on you, make sure you're not disrupting things for others. God. And so the best way to do that is to keep you locked up and keep you on probation and keep you tied up with financial obligations. You know, that, that's basically it. They, they don't ever want you to leave. And if you do try to improve yourself, they don't actually care about that. They don't care about recidivism rates or anything because it's part of their job. Like they, as long as uh, they get to arrest people, their jobs are secure. Um, what year was this that you started school? Um, I think, I think it was, um, let's see, 2013. It was the beginning April t- in, in 2013. Okay. So then Douglas County issues that warrant they promised to issue in 2013 sometime. Yes. And this is also around the time. So you're in school and then you start a, Hey, your painting business, right? When, when did you start that? I started that my last year of school. Cutting in real quick, think about, as you're listening to this next section, the amount of hustle, the amount of determination, and the amount of fucking ingenuity it would take to do what Jeremy does here. Could you have pulled this off? I don't think I could have. I was taking 16 credits. I had a paid position as the editor-in-chief of the school paper, and I was running a painting business, and I started it without a car. So I convinced College Pro to give me a franchise <laughs> That's incredible. with no car without a car. I, I, I told them this plan I had, which wasn't my actual plan. <laughs> so I told them that I had this, this money that I was going to get loaned and uh, the car was coming and all of this stuff. So I'll be ready to go by then. And I didn't, my plan was to just sell a couple jobs and get the deposits for those jobs and buy a car and get going. Wow. And so I started off, riding the bus to people's houses like with cans of paint on the bus no 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 no. i I wasn't paint i wasn't painting yet i was just doing the estimates oh yeah yeah yeah. gotcha i would just put my binders and everything in my backpack and i would tell them oh the the car's in the shop (laughs) so i would would lie to my customer and say oh the car's in the shop because i was so embarrassed you know but i was like i just have to make this work because uh painting houses all i really know how to do yeah and I'm not going to get a job in journalism making $30,000 a year right away or anything, you know, man, I, I, this story is actually so much more, it's, it's wild what you had to do to even just scrape together ends meet. Oh yeah. I am the ultimate story of pull yourself up by the bootstraps and to, you wouldn't believe how many times I hear people tell me that I'm uh, just a lazy person that does nothing because I'm a socialist, you know, like I live in my parents' basement and uh, I need to pick myself up by the bootstraps. And not anybody that has ever said that to me has a story or a case as strong as mine for pick yourself up by the bootstraps. And it's because of that, because I pick myself up by my bootstraps or whatever the hell you want to say about it that I know how impossible it is yeah, totally. and how there was also strings of luck that came by. My, uh, my girlfriend became my fiance. She got a good job yeah. uh, while we were together. So that was, so it took a little bit of the pressure. Yeah, exactly. And so like, I knew I wasn't going to be homeless. I knew that I had somebody that loved me that had at least some faith in me, uh, picking things up. Yeah. And, 
a lot of people don't have that. Uh, when yeah. I first got clean, my, my dad had a, a string of fortunate events and was able to pay my $300 a month rent for nine months. And wow. so most people recovering drug addicts don't have that either. Absolutely. So there's a lot of things that fell into place for me and hard work. So yeah. impossible, yeah. strenuous, relentless work trying to pull myself out of it and good luck. Right. And if I didn't have that good fortune, all my hard work wouldn't have meant anything. And that's why I'm a socialist because I know <laughs> that it's not true. The hard work isn't enough. Right. Plus I'm white and I live in Spokane where we know that landlords discriminate against black people. Yeah. It's pretty well documented. Yeah. And so I mean, there's just so many different things that, that worked in my favor. And we just ignore that because of the hard work that I did, because I did actually do hard work. But we have to look at the fact that I was very fortunate. And um, uh, and it's hard to say that I was fortunate because <laughs> it sure didn't feel that way. And, well, and, it's, um, and it's, it's so just think let's just like think for a second about how uh, nauseating it is that you can tell this story and then also feel fortunate, right? Yeah, this is a story yeah. of just like relentlessly, you know, whatever. Like, and I'm I'm trying to sometimes, you know, sometimes you have to like put your shoes, put yourself in the shoes of other people listening to this, and where it's like, well, he did heroin for X number of years, whatever. Like, why should we feel sorry for him? It's like, well, maybe you can choose not to. That's fine, whatever. <laughs> but like, we. Even even this our beloved sheriff agrees that things like addiction are a disease, right? You can't right. And, and diseases are hereditary. And it doesn't mean that you had to like, you know, put that needle in your arm the first time. But a lot of people again, it's like there's people, there are things like I have had back problems in my past too. I've taken Percocet. I was able to come through it with enough stability that I did not get hooked on heroin. But as this shit has like uh this opioid epidemic that is now crippling massive swaths of our country yeah. has come up. I think about that all the time where I was laying in my, laying on my, my couch for months at a time, just like, cool. Can't do anything except take these pills and watch TV. I hope yeah. I get better someday. And it is fun, right? <laughs> it's not, it's not, not fun. I'll say that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to cut in again for a second because I'm kind of downplaying it. It's not just not, not fun. Percocet is one of the funnest things you can do. It's more fun than alcohol. At least it was for me. There's a number of things as a, a man-child, college-aged idiot. I tried to get myself hooked on cigarettes. I tried to. I did my absolute best to have a drinking problem in the first couple of years of college. Later on into this day, I smoked my fair share of weed over the years and nothing ever stuck. Nothing ever was like became an animal need. Like I was getting pulled against my will and out of my control into something until I'm 27 and I'm working out and I aggravate an old injury from mountain biking as a kid and I herniate two discs in my lower back. And from then on, for almost like a half a decade, pretty much like clockwork once a year, every year, sometime between July and like September, I would re-aggravate this injury and every time my doctor would put me on Percocet, Percocet 15s, which is oxycodone plus acetaminophen. And that was usually part of a three-drug cocktail that included a anti-inflammatory and a muscle relaxant. And that cocktail, holy shit, you could be in tooth-gnashing, gut-curdling, seeing spots, you're in so much pain, but you could still be having a really good time. 
And it's not too long before you start to feel like, yeah, you know what? Maybe I should just keep doing this all the time. This would be a nice thing to do. It helps even out a lot of the other stuff in life in addition to the physical pain. And slight side note, I got eventually diagnosed for my ADD because rather than making me drowsy, if you have severe ADD, Oxy can act like a focusing agent. It helps calm your brain so you can literally focus. And so I'm sure you can imagine that there's this little reptile part of my brain saying, well, it's super fun and it also helps you focus, Luke. You're actually being a little bit more productive at your job. It's great. You should just keep doing this. And I don't want to say I got really, really close to doing it. I don't want to say that I was ever hooked, but it was there. I could feel that urge building even from, you know, a month or two of taking this medicine ostensibly to help rehabilitate my back whenever it went out. And if I would have tried to use my back pain as an excuse to get as much oxy as I wanted, either because I was hooked on it or just to act as a mood stabilizer, basically, I could have done it because that prescribing doctor that had been giving me the medicine all this time eventually lost their license for over-prescribing, largely because of the perverse incentive structures that pharmaceutical companies are now paying billions of dollars in damages for all the ruined lives they knowingly created by pushing and pushing and pushing doctors to push and push and push these medicines on people. So cool, Baumgarten, why are you giving me this cut rate, fear and loathing in Brown's edition story again? First of all, that's mean. Second of all, two things, quickly. I hear Jeremy's story and it's not that much of a leap to be like, I could see myself going down a path pretty fucking similar to the one he goes down without some of that luck that he talks about. Almost every day I have cause to reflect on the role luck has played in my life. So yeah, man, there but for the grace of God go I, one. Two, you have literally 30 years of oxycodone abuse pushed by drug companies that know the addictive properties of it. And so for 30 years, people are making billions and billions and billions of dollars at the top of these drug companies and their names are getting put on the sides of buildings, museums, and stuff like that. And meanwhile, jails are filling up with people like Jeremy Logan. I would personally like to see people like Jeremy go free while people like the Sackler family get strung up by their toes. They are far more dangerous. Their crimes are far greater to our nation than anything somebody like Jeremy Logan has done. And it's a little weird. It's not them getting arrested by cops posing as homeless people on their way to like the theater or something. It's almost as if the primary role of law enforcement is less about keeping us safe and more about entrenching power. All right, back to the interview. Yeah. And so when that's fun and you feel some kind of peace because it's drug induced yeah, and you've never felt peace in your life and you know that when this is all over and you have to go back to working for somebody else and getting paid nothing and treated like shit and having an unstable life, uh, addiction's easier to fall into. Yeah, absolutely. Other things to, to look at too is like I had serious childhood trauma, ADHD, which made it, I didn't know. I just didn't, I wasn't good at doing my homework, you know? Yeah. Yep. That, <laughs> and so there was just a, a lot of different things that just made life a lot lot harder for me and there's people that have had it harder than me that didn't go that route but then there's also if you really inspect those people's lives things are a lot more predictable than you think because there's there's something in the way they were raised or they had a parent that was involved yeah you know even though they went through trauma they had somebody that was actually there and patient or something there's always something that is different and it you can't really point to this two people with similar stories and say, well, this person did that and that person didn't do that. 
So this person's a good person and that one's not. Right. And so if we, given all the, the variation in people's lives, and that's true of like normal diseases too, right? It's like if you're poor and you get cancer, you're a hundred times more screwed than if you're wealthy and you have cancer. You might still both die of cancer, but it's a lot easier to have cancer when you're rich than when you're poor, right? right. And if we agree, and again, our, our beloved sheriff, even, even the sort of the toughest on drug crime people, and especially like you were mentioning, since white people have started getting hooked on prescription opiates, we've gotten really, really good at saying that addiction is a disease, but we still punitively punish people for their diseases rather than making it easy for them to get treatment, and, oh. you know, get their lives back on track. Yeah. Every, every time I sat in a cop car, um, I didn't like do a whole lot of like fighting with them and calling them pigs. I did that when I was younger, you know, but I, I always uh, took that opportunity to educate the police officer <laughs> on what I was going through and the fact that I have a disease that it is literally illegal to have and that I am poor and it is literally illegal to be poor. Right. And um, so explaining that to cops was like my way of trying to educate people because for some reason, those cops liked me all the time. Really? <laughs> I, I, hated them because they were, you know, trying to jail is torture. You know, I don't care. I mean, yeah. most of us, when we get out, like we all of a sudden forget how awful it was because we're just so happy to be out. Right. But it's torture. It's horrible. There's boogers on the walls. Everybody's gross. It stinks. Um, there's no privacy or there's too much privacy, <laughs> you know, right. where you're just totally isolated. Yeah. 23 hours. So it's one or the other. And, and, uh, the people there don't treat you like a human being and that doesn't reform people. That doesn't make people get out and want to do happy, lovey things to the rest of the world. You know, I want, so I want to talk, I want to talk about the reform thing in a second. So, and okay, yeah. right, right, right before we get there, so you're, you, so you're in Spokane, you're taking the bus to do estimates for this painting business you're trying to start. <laughs> and it's, worth it. you're pulling yourself up by, you you know, I, I'm going to stop saying that you're, you're, getting your life together, yeah. uh, kind of against all odds. It's, it's pretty, pretty cool. Uh, so between 2013 and, you know, a couple weeks ago, you're on your grind building this business. You're yeah. sort of pulling yourself more and more out of, uh, out of poverty. Mm -hmm. 2018 comes, you're still only paying 600 bucks a month in rent because when your landlord, uh, up the rent or even less than that, maybe because I was for a two bedroom, I don't know what, what sort of apartment you were in. They upped it to close to 1200, almost doubling everybody in this relatively big apartment complexes rent overnight. You're only, you're yeah. still only paying 600 bucks. So it's not like you're all of a sudden, you know, a millionaire, uh, <laughs> you still, you, you've never paid off these LFOs from your time in jail. You, when you would get, if you got pulled over by the police, I think you mentioned that you, um, you got like, you'd get a speeding ticket or something, get pulled over. And the, did the cops ever, did the warrant ever come up at those points? Uh, like years yeah. ago? Um, uh, the first time I got pulled over, I was giving uh, somebody a ride and then I was driving home and a cop pulled me over and told me I had a warrant and took me out of the car and put me in handcuffs and then called Douglas County and they didn't want me. And then another time I was doing an estimate and then I get done with the estimate and their neighbor is a, a, a Spokane County Sheriff. 
I leave and he pulls out behind me and follows me and I take a right and then a left and then a left and then a right, you know, to see if he's following me. And he's definitely following. Me. Definitely following. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and then eventually I'm just like, okay, well just turn your lights on, you know, <laughs> like, what are we doing? <laughs> and, um, he eventually pulls me over and tells me I have a warrant and takes me out of the car and puts me up against his car. And then they say that they don't want me on that warrant because they're not going to extradite me for not paying a fine. Yeah. It's just, it doesn't make any sense because it costs more money to extradite me than the fine does. Wow. <laughs> so twice, twice in seven years, Douglas County is like, we don't, care enough to have you ship him back to East Wenatchee. Right. Which is why I was able to put it off. And it, it should be said that I pay about $600, including um, my student loans and past like fines and debt and everything. So I pay $600 a month and I've been doing that for like three years Wow, to pass debt. And I'm not even close to done. Yeah. And, and some of that keeps my driver's license viable. So you, you kind of have to choose, you know, it's like, what, which, which debts am I going to pay so that I can not go bankrupt, not lose what <laughs> small things I have and keep, keep the driver's license that allows me to drive my truck that allows me to keep my business going. Right. And you know, there, there's probably some amount of me just not managing money really well. Cause I make, I make, you know, almost double what the average is in Spokane. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, uh, but that's also like the, that's like the rich the rich dad poor dad thing where it's like you know you got if you don't if you grow up poor you never learn how to manage money and then yeah. when even if you get money then you're not necessarily great at managing whatever and like I, well yeah, yeah that's, and that's, that's, that's common and I have like you know ADHD and like depression and that sort of thing and sometimes that expresses itself in um, spending more money than I think I'm spending right but this this shit's not a crime right, right. people get to be bad with money. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Fuck's sake. So okay. I know I, I feel I, I honestly like I feel like I have to defend myself because uh, it's always, you know, your fault. And, and I don't know. It's just so difficult. Like some people things come easier for and then they look down on people that it doesn't come as easy for. Right. And when 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 you're spending money on like your third jet ski. People aren't like, oh my God, that guy's so bad with money. But when you're like, you get a little depressed and buy yourself something just to feel a little bit better about the world when you don't have a lot of money, it's all of a sudden, it's looked down upon. Damn it. I do not know why my voice is cutting out like that in this recording. Sorry. So, okay. So you got like, you get popped twice in the last seven years and Douglas County both times is like, we don't want this guy. And one of the, one of the times was the guy was a sheriff's deputy. So Ozzy's, Ozzy's team knows about you, at least in some way. Right. But it, it never really goes beyond that until let's talk about Sunday, August 29th. You're on your way to a protest of a Black Lives Matter protest downtown Spokane. You park on Stevens over by Berserk, right? Yes. A, a truly awesome bar. One of the cooler, new, newer <laughs> bars in Spokane. If, you're, if you have not yeah. been to Berserk, you need to go. It's, it's great. Uh, it's a good time. So what happens? Just walk me through that. You get out of your car and then what? Well, f- first, I think it's important to point this out because there, there is some kind of surveillance. Um, the sheriff has said that uh, um, they just saw me and recognized me, which doesn't make any sense why they would recognize me. You know what I mean? Like just because Berserk is not, is not near the protest, right? No, no. Um, yeah. I, I, I park like 
it's probably a quarter mile away. Yeah. So unless they're surveilling all of downtown, Berserk is on South Stevens, but I think it's like the 122 South Stevens. I don't know. Don't ask me why I know the address. It's right <laughs> by the railroad tracks. Yes. This protest is happening in the park. Yeah. At River, Riverfront Park. Yeah. So we're talking at least a quarter of a mile away, if not yeah. more. Yeah. And so you're, you're, you feel like you're being surveilled the moment you get out of your car a quarter of a mile away from the protest? Yeah, so before I left, I, I texted my friend and told him exactly where I was going to park. I live really close to downtown, so it was not far. I get there, and I get out of my truck, call him, and tell him I'm going to meet up with him, and he's up the street a little bit. So we're walking towards each other. Okay. And I look over to my right, and I see this guy parked in a completely vacant pay parking lot. And I think it's weird. I noticed it. Like the only car in this lot. Yeah. And I think that's weird right away. And then he starts walking away from downtown and there's nothing away from downtown except fast food. And if you're going to one of those places, you would just stay in your car. Yeah. <laughs> obviously. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering why he's walking that way. And then I hear my name and I look back behind me a little bit and two guys are running towards me. One's dressed like he's militia or something. And uh, the other one is dressed like a, a rent-a-cop. Like, you can tell it's not like a cop's uniform, you know? Huh. Like a cheap button-up T-shirt that's blue and has an American flag patch on it, but no name, no badge, nothing. Right. And um, and it's important to say that in the context of these protests, like we, I talked about with Leah Satilli a couple weeks ago, it's like, this is all so this could this these people could be law enforcement, they could be private security, they could also be just like militia LARPers, right? Like you don't know who these guys are. Yeah. And um, well at, at first I didn't understand what was going on. And then the guy uh that had been walking to the parking lot was cutting me off all of a sudden and he grabbed me. And he put he had he opened up his shirt and there was a row of handcuffs, and he started putting me in handcuffs and telling me that I was under arrest and I'm going, what for, what am I under arrest for? And he says, well, you have a, um, you have a warrant in, uh, Okanagan County. And I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> Cause I know I don't have one. No. I was like, I don't go to Okanagan County. I don't have a warrant in Okanagan County. There's very little in Okanagan County. You live, you're in Oroville. There's a, I think there's a big border patrol station up there. You're, you're either like rural, like back to the land folks or if you're in Winthrop or Twisp, you're like a Seattle millionaire who has a uh, has like a <laughs> yes. home, There's and that's like, that's basically all that's in Okanagan County. Well, and and Native Americans, right? Lots. Of, there's a lot of Native Americans that up there, and then yeah, like earthy hippie types that live in buses, <laughs> and then and then artist communities. So this guy's telling you basically like you have a warrant in a place you've never really been. And you're like, I don't, I don't believe you. <laughs> yeah. I haven't been there since like 2001. <laughs> wow. Okay. So yeah. And, uh, uh, so then at that point too, a van pulls up and I'm like, holy shit, this is the same thing that's happening in Portland. Right. And I, I start asking them, who are you? Because I know about this unidentified officer thing. And I'm saying, who are you? Because I'm assuming they're De department of Homeland security still suspicious right. that they may be department of homeland security right and um uh this has been happening in like the the couple weeks leading up to this this was just happening in portland yeah and, and and another thing that i haven't mentioned before there was like two because we were right by the railroad and there's the, the overpass 
the railway overpass and uh, two railroad workers were out there on a car and they were looking down and laughing. And one of them said something about kidnapping. And then one of the guys that arrested me was like, oh yeah, kidnapping or something like that. And uh, also a guy that was dressed like a homeless person jumped up and was all of a sudden alert and after me, like there was, wow. I think, I think there was like six or seven guys. I, I know that there was the two that I mentioned, plus the guy walking through the parking lot, plus the homeless looking guy, plus a guy wearing a Cubs shirt and a baseball hat. And then another guy that was with him that I don't remember what he was wearing. So I know there was at least that many people picking me up for not paying on a fine. That's like literal the move, like the eighties movie stakeout. Like I'm pretty sure they were like, one of the cops was like dressed as a homeless person, like while they were staking out like, <laughs> a, a, like a vast criminal ring or something. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. What? Like, they're, like I'm, they're arresting John Gotti or something. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm just like this dude that wants people to have health care and a place to live, you know, <laughs> Right. I, I, I just I want every human being to be treated with dignity. That That's what I'm fighting for. And I'm, that makes me a danger. Right. So these guys throw you into the back of like a Dodge Caravan or something? Yeah. So the van pulls up and... Uh, and you're saying it's... You said it was like not just unmarked, but kind of shitty. Like it was kind of a janky... Oh, it, it was like beat up. The The interior was tore up. Um, all the seats were removed except the bench seat in the back. I'm just trying to paint a picture for people. Maybe it would not surprise me if a lot of people that are going to listen to this podcast have not been justice involved before. And I, I haven't either, just to be completely honest. But when I think of unmarked cars, I, it's like it's a Crown Victoria that's just like blacked out, not or, or you know, like now it's like Challengers and stuff. It's like there is a vibe that police vehicles have. And they're like pretty much all the same, right? It's like it was yeah. if you were getting picked up by a straight up like normal police vehicle, I would expect it to be like a blacked out Ford Explorer or something, uh, not like a, a late model Dodge Caravan, <laughs> which is actually not incidentally. It was that was one of the things that was so weird and scary about those Portland protests was like people were getting thrown into like old ass Chevy Astro vans. And so right. when I was right. hearing about this. I was in, this was when you were still in jail and I was just like hearing from like random places on social media about your arrest. I was like, dude, if that guy guy got thrown into an Astro van, he could be getting like renditioned to Guantanamo Bay right now for all I know. Cause like that was, you know, it was these like these weird ad hoc federal government, like jackboots that were just picking people up and then like taking them to undisclosed locations in Portland. I'm like, what the hell is going on right now? It was so, everything about it was just so weird to me. And so not to, I'm, I'm trying to like editorialize right now and jump in, but like when, when, when Ozzy later is like, Oh yeah, he didn't seem that scared. And it was, this is just standard operating. This is standard procedure. I'm like, no, this does not seem like standard procedure to me at no. all. No, this, this would never, ever, ever happen if it wasn't for my politics. There's no way I've been through the system so many times. And that's what I kept saying the whole time too. It was like, who are you? This isn't how this is done. <laughs> I know I'm familiar enough with the system. I've been arrested like 40 times. In I'm my kind life. of an expert in getting arrested. <laughs> yeah. 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 I've got this down. This isn't how this works. Right. So the last thing they were like, one guy had a badge around his neck. And so he should have been able to realize that these were cops your friends didn't realize they were cops either. There was no way for them to identify either. And they weren't the ones being arrested. Right. And that's important to to say, too, is that I had no way to contact them 
And they were on social media while I was in jail talking about what happened, saying that yes. they were unidentifiable uh, people that, that said I was under arrest and threw me in a fucking minivan. Sorry for my language. <laughs> and so they, they were saying this on Facebook and Twitter while I was in there without confirming or coordinating a story with me. They also said that they were unidentifiable. They heard me asking them, who are you? Who are you? Why am I under arrest? What is happening? This doesn't make sense. Yeah. You know, which I kept repeating over and over again. And at, at one point they were, they were like, where should we put them in the, the guy that had been walking through the parking lot, the one that grabbed me, he said, uh, just throw them in the van. And he said, we can't throw them in the van. It's full of guns. What? <laughs> so they, they just had this gan this van full of guns. Like, what were they doing with a van full of guns at a protest where we have a history of these protests going very, very calmly? Right. In fact, organizers of these protests coordinated with the police for the route of their march. Right. Which other certain certain organizers were really pissed off about the the, the level of coordination between the police. Uh, and yeah. So this was this was a, 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 a protest that was coordinated with police. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So they move the stash of guns they have aside in order to put you in the back of this van. And then they, they hand you off to a city cop, like a single, yeah. like a patrol officer who's yeah, they, in uniform. Yeah. They drive me to another location and then hand me over to a, a city cop. Still haven't identified themselves. The last time I asked them, they told me not to worry about it. And then you ask the city cop who they are. And he says, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was just sitting there. Like I wasn't going to show them that I was scared. I was showing them that I was pissed. Uh, I didn't want to show any vulnerability to them and we're going into jail. And I'm like, I'm like, this isn't how this works, man. Like I didn't pay a fine. That's the only thing I have a warrant for. And you put this much effort into to locating me, tracking me down and arresting me with a ton of people. As you, you've spent more money on arresting me than my fine is worth. I, oh, and I said, Douglas County doesn't even want me. How do you know that they want me if you haven't even called them to check? Because that's how this works. You arrest me and then you check with Douglas County and then they say, no, we don't want him. And then you let me go. You don't take me into jail. This isn't how this works. And he said, well, those officers told me that Douglas County wants you. And I was like, oh, those were officers? What kind of officers were those? That was my exact wordage. And he said, I don't know. And that audio is going to come out. Like that That has to be in records. Yeah. Because it was in a city police car and they are recorded. So unless you turn it off. One of, the, one of the key differences between Spokane sheriffs and Spokane city cops is that Spokane city cops have body cams. They have recording devices and sheriffs don't. Right. Yeah. And then that cop later in the media told them that uh, that I asked him who those people were. And he said, I don't know, because I didn't know their names or whatever. But that's not true. So but here's the thing that one of the things that bothers me about that specific moment, and I'm glad you brought that up because it was like, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of these police officers and especially the city cop. But like, what, like what sort of just like low key dick move is it to be like, I don't know, man. I don't know who those guys are. I care so little about you that you're asking me a question like who just arrested me. And I can't say like that was Spokane Sheriff, dude. Those were the sheriffs. <laughs> right. It's the easiest thing to do. 
Yeah. And it's like, even if he was sort of like, even if he was confused, a normal human interaction would be like, wait, what do you mean? I don't know who those dudes are. They're like, no, you didn't know what agency. Oh, sheriffs. Like that is a, nor- that's the way a normal human interaction would go in that situation. And so that was a, and, and he said he didn't feel like you were, you seemed scared, but like, <laughs> come on, man. Like, it's just like, be a person, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and the, the, the whole thing is like everything that they did was purposefully meant to terrorize me, to put fear into organizers, yeah. to make them second guess everything, to second guess each other, to think that we're snitching on each other and this and that. When I mean, there's nothing even to, you know, there's no criminal activity. It's a goddamn DSA, you know? It's the nicest group of nerds that I've ever hung out with in my entire life. I adore them. <laughs> Nobody is, uh, um, you know, they're not, they're not uh, plotting a violent revolution against the police force. Yeah. You end up in jail for what, like 48 hours or slightly less? Yeah, yeah. So, and again, this is where like, I don't like do, when you, when you leave jail, don't you usually, isn't there usually some paperwork to be like, okay, you have a court appearance or you have to call your public defender or like what, like, yeah. isn't there usually yeah. some sort of like instruction packet you get? That's like, if you don't do these things, we're going to throw you back in jail. Yeah. Usually you'll, you'll get a court date and everything set up before you leave. So what did you, what did you leave jail with? Just the stuff I came with. Uh, my dad paid the bail. He got a receipt for the bail and that's it. So, so you sent me the receipt, like a, a screenshot <laughs> of the receipt. It's literally like, it looks like the sort of receipt that you would get from like a cash only business. <laughs> let me actually, let me pull it up. It, it, it literally, it's an, it's like an entire eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. And it just says Spokane County detention services, receipt number 50,937. Logan Jeremy W. Deposit amount five hundred dollars. That's it. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't yeah. say what you were brought in on. It doesn't say what the charges are. It certainly doesn't have any. It doesn't even have. It doesn't even have any sort of contact information for the Spokane County Detention Services. It has right. nothing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It so, just says deposit. Yeah. Yeah, and the only yeah, I had no idea what like you there. They have to send you off with some kind of instructions usually, you know. But like I so said, I, I wasn't arrested for this warrant, you know. Right. You, you weren't arraigned. There were, you didn't go you, – you did not go in front of a judge. Yeah. So then how did bail get set if you didn't see a judge? That's that's Yeah, I don't understand that part either. And my bail didn't get set until I refused to talk to federal agents. And at that point, after that, my, my bond was posted. And my dad, you know, because – he was the only person I was able to call. I was like, you have to keep checking to see if a, a, a bail goes up because I don't know if I'm going to be able to communicate with you, which I wasn't. They didn't allow me to use the phone the rest of the time I was there. Well, so you made your one phone call. You called your dad and you said, hey, dad, just keep refreshing the website basically to see if I can yeah. make bail. Yeah. Yeah. Because usually I don't think that they usually set bail if you have a warrant that you're supposed to be extradited to another county for. Right. Because they, they're not going to they don't want to bail you out because they want to extradite you to another county. Right. So I've never had it for something as small as like owing money. Uh, yeah. But I've been extradited before. And there is no bail. You get extradited and then you go see a judge there 
and the time that you spend in jail in another county is dead time. They don't count it. Right. You can talk to a judge. You can you can convince a judge to to count it, <laughs> but typically it's just considered dead time, and they won't even count that as your jail time. And uh, yeah, you, once you go see a judge, then you either plead guilty and, and do your sentence, or you plead not guilty and get a, a bond set. Right. Me, I always, you know, especially, you know, when I was on drugs, I would uh, just plead guilty because I, I would get out of there sooner. <laughs> right. Because it, it was always for like, you know, possession of paraphernalia or something because I had a needle or something like that. And uh, it would be like you get four days or something, you know. But if you plead not guilty, they set your court date for two weeks later and they give you like a, for me, they always gave me like a $5,000 bond or something, you know? Right. Something you could, couldn't in a million years pay. Right. And uh, in fact, the last time it was $25,000 bail. So that's out of my reach and nobody's going to come bail me out. So I would always just plead guilty so I could get out of there. Okay. Let me make sure I've got this right. So your, your friends don't know what's going on. Uh, and this is when I, I pick up on it on social media because people are just like, Jeremy Logan and that name rings a bell. I'm like, Oh, I think I've, I've been on a zoom call with him once. And I know him as like the tenants guy and the DSA guy. That's, right. that's how I knew. You. I was like, Holy shit, Jeremy. Wow. I know that guy. So I like start yeah. looking into it. Nobody knows what's happening. Uh, some local activists are like trying to get money on your commissary. Cause they don't know how long you're going to be in there. Nobody's telling them anything because you're part of DSA and you're the co-chair, it starts getting, it starts making maybe bigger waves than it would have made normally to other people around the sort of like left Twitter sphere. And it starts picking up momentum nationally. And then all of a sudden a guy named a writer named Christopher Mathias, a staff writer at the Huffington post wants to look into it. And that's you guys, you don't really have much information until the Huffington post for fuck's sake. Uh, (laughs) Starts asking, starts calling law enforcement, right? Right. And then I hear the sheriff is is telling Chris Matthews that it was a felony warrant. It's not a felony warrant. It's a warrant for not paying fines, for not meeting financial obligations. And he's choosing that wording to try to paint me as like this scary villain. And uh, well, and then so- with and then with a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks after that, to think about how he wants to word it, he did that again at his the press conference he did on September eighth. <laughs> he called you a felon with a felony warrant, which is kind of like redundant, crappy uh, speech skills. But it's also like not paying LFOs. That's not a felony, right? You're thrown in jail, but it's not like they're adding another felony. Yeah, yeah. So he was just dishonest. Let me just underscore this for a second. I, so I feel like I'm cutting you off a lot here, but it's like you. <laughs> are a person who served your time. You did your uh, time. You know, you, you served a lot of time at some points in your life. You got arrested a bunch of times and you got your shit together and you moved to a different city, an entirely different city. You've built a name for yourself. You've built your own business that sounds like you have incredibly uh, generous labor practices when you do hire people, but you're mostly a sole proprietor. You know, again, American dream shit. If law enforcement and what is generally called the criminal justice system and our friends like at the bail project like to call the criminal legal system because they like to take justice out of it because it doesn't feel like there's much justice in the system. No, not for working people, not for poor people, not for people of color. Exactly. If the point of that system, and this is what they say the point of the system is, is to reform people. (laughs) 
you have reformed. And, and not only are you a person who has pulled themselves out of poverty, you have then, when things have happened to you, you have done things like organize your fellow tenants to sort of fight back against, you know, slumlords and shit. Yeah. So you've yeah. like, you've, you're doing and you're, and you're volunteering your time with a political group uh, called the Democratic Socialists of America. You're going down to protest to protest violence against people of color and black people. And so by all accounts... And I'm not, you know, whatever, like we can have the argument about whether all, all sins should be washed clean at that point, but there's no. Well, that's the thing is what they're not even sins against. Like there is no victims. That's, and that's a good point. <laughs> so sometimes these fines that we're talking about can be victim restitution, where it's like Jeremy did something to somebody and now he has to pay that person money. That's not right. the case here. These were, no. these were the sort of like the bureaucratic fines and fees that just happen when you get, go through the, the legal system. Yeah, they, they charge you for being on probation. Uh, right. And so I guess we can have the argument in, in the abstract or in the halls of the legislature or whatever about at what point fines like that should be waived. Or maybe just we need to stop, you know, I know you're, you're not the biggest fan of Daniel Walters or the Inlander, but he, want, he he's among other guys. Like Daniel Walters is not, a, is not a reporter that takes a lot of stands, like a lot of moral stands. He's wow. like, LFOs are bullshit. Everybody thinks LFOs are bullshit. If the if the purpose of the criminal legal system is to reform, uh, turn pe- turn criminals into non criminals, LFOs keep people in the cycle of criminality because it keeps them poor. It keeps them it, it like everything you've already said. It prevents people from climbing out of that cycle of poverty. Yeah, absolutely. That's it, it's and it's. It's by design, you know. If you have an attorney that's arguing for your bail to be lowered, what they will tell them is he has a job. Right. Especially if you make good money. Like if they were like, look, this guy's an attorney. <laughs> yeah, just release it. Yeah, my, 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 my client is a pillar of the community. He's no danger. Uh, release him on his own recognizance. Yeah. So reporters start digging in. So Chris Mathias from the Huffington Post, but then like our local reporters jump in too. And everybody's like on this because it's like, you know, people are really, really curious about it. And it's getting a lot of attention. We eventually find out through all this reporting that um, the assertion that the sheriff's department is making, that Ozzy Knezovich is making, is that they were doing sort of routine surveillance of protesters that had been do- coming to these uh Black Lives Matter protests, and they saw posts of yours that were threatening, making threats enough to. He even called them ISIS like. ISIS like threats. <laughs> and so the reporters are like, okay, cool. Can you show us those? And they send literally one tweet that um, we can talk about in a second, but that the, the, pup, the information officer, uh, I think his name's Deputy Gregory, even admits like, we, it's not an actionable threat. And they edited it. And they edited it. So can you talk about what that, what the, the one big... It made all the right-wing headlines. Right. The thing that made all the right-wing headlines and the, the sort of the, the reason they gave for taking an interest in you in the first place. Can you explain what that post was and what it said? Yeah. So Elijah McLean had been murdered like a year previous, but I think they had just decided that they weren't going to press charges or something like that. So something had just recirculated his story and he was a 23 year old autistic kid that liked to play his violin for kittens in his free time. And this was like in what Aurora, Colorado or something. Yeah, it was in, it was in Colorado for sure. I had just read his last words and his last words on recording were him 
telling the officers, I'm sorry, I'm just different. I don't mean to be this way. I love you. You're beautiful. You're doing a good job. I love you. And then they killed him. That's awful. And I read that. And the way I felt was so deeply sad and angry that somebody could do that to another person and then not be held accountable for it. And my thoughts on that at the time were, uh, I, I wanted some kind of, I wanted them to, to be punished for what they did. And the way I felt about it at the time was expressed in a, tw- uh, in a post where I just said, I would like to saw these pig's heads off with a handsaw. And right. they're taking that as some kind of a direct threat or something when I feel like it's clearly just a statement of how I felt. And they edited out the part about Elijah. So it just says, uh, I, I would, I'm not going to lie. I would like to take these pig's heads off with a handsaw. And they just isolated that part of it. Right. And so like, you know, that, you know, I'm just going to be totally honest, man. Like that's the sort of thing. Like when I see, when people say stuff like that on a public forum, it's like, yep, shit, that sucks. Because like, that's a, you know, that's like the sort of thing that like gets used to demonize people, regardless of where you're at on the, on the right or the left. Yeah. Uh, and it, and it sucks. But I also think about like, what, how many things did I say, you know, as a young, you know, like a, a liberal in the early two thousands when I was like, what, how many friends did I have that like talked about, you know, casually doing violence to George W. Bush. You know what I mean? Like that's the sort of shit that like we say things like that and you don't necessarily mean them. Right. And and you are trying to be provocative. You are trying to cause people to uh, relate to that emotion, you know, and that, that, that particular post did get a lot of likes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, a lot of people agreed with how I felt, you know, that it was just so egregious that there was no, no words to say. Um, that could express it at least in that moment. Right. Yeah, totally. And so like, and that's where, but here's, what's so important about this too. It's like, regardless of how I feel about this or regardless of how you feel about it in hindsight, or regardless of how like somebody who sees that on the six o'clock news might feel about it. The cops before they ever pulled you in, when they first saw this thing decided, and this is again at the, this is what the, the public information officer uh, Deputy Gregory told all of these news outlets was that that was not an actionable threat. We couldn't, you know, it's like they did not arrest you for making threats against police officers. Right. They just, right. that was their pretense for looking more deeply into your past and being like, oh, this guy has a seven year old warrant. Let's just pull him in and fuck with him. Let's just, let's just disrupt this guy's life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that <laughs> it's very well put. It also, is because of the sheriff's fantasies about this centralized Antifa movement that doesn't exist. And because he believes all the boomer memes out there on the internet, he (laughs) comes to these outlandish flat earther style conclusions about centralized movements and funded by some outside source. I'm pretty sure that's probably what they were going to, what the feds wanted to talk to me about when I refused to talk to them is probably they were going to ask me about who was funding it, which is just so ridiculous. And the things they're pointing to for funding is, 
oh, well, they had gas masks and they had homemade shields or something. I don't know. Like there was, I don't know what he's talking about, how they had riot gear. Like it's that expensive to buy a gas mask and a radio, you know, they had Rocky talkies or whatever. He's like, oh, they had high speed radios. Who's funding this? Well, who, who the hell's funding the militia guys that are showing up with $2,000 worth of gear strapped to their chest, you know? Yeah, nobody, nobody asked that question. No. <laughs> I mean, it's called a job, you know? We, we're the right. working class. We all have jobs. The, that whole thing needs to, like, be put to rest. Like, we work. That's, that's, where, that's what funds it. Your capitalist system is what is funding our, uh, our so-called revolution. Right. <laughs> One of like and like they were you know it's like this high level of coordination because a few people brought leaf blowers it's like uh <laughs> it's like where did they get these leaf blowers it's like i don't know home depot could have been <laughs> out of their garages it if is they ha- if they're lucky enough to have a garage they pro- they could have a leaf blower it's pretty conceivable not hard to imagine at all that somebody was like watching pro- the protests on television and was like, oh, I see when people get tear gassed, uh, they use milk. And then when uh, and then sometimes it looks like people are bringing uh, leaf blowers to try to blow the blow the smoke away from people. Cool. I could I could do that. <laughs> I got a leaf blower in my garage. That, that, that's, that's not a high level of coordination. That's just watching the news. Yeah, um, that is one of the things that I, I'd like to give Daniel Walters credit for was he was like, well, Sheriff, have, have you do you remember the ice bucket challenge? And he's trying to explain to him like. <laughs> People see things on the internet and, and they, they copy yeah, they become viral and then they c- imitate it. And he's trying to explain that to the sheriff and the sheriff's like, what, what, this isn't, it's not an ice bucket challenge. What are you talking about? This is nonsense. Instead of actually addressing what he, what he said, you know, he just, yeah. he just started huffing. <laughs> it was pretty funny <sighs> to watch. I was actually going to play Ozzy's press conference to start uh-huh. and then do this interview with you. But it's a 46-minute press conference. His little presentation is like 25 minutes. I recorded like in real time reactions uh-huh. that are almost two hours long to that 25-minute. It's just so completely like chock full of bullshit that yeah. I like, I'm like, yeah. this has to be two episodes. And then I probably also have to cut this down massively because it's <laughs> like, there's nothing here. And he, and he starts by saying this was not a politically motivated arrest. And then he spends 25 minutes yelling about Antifa. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. And, and discussing my politics and, and talking about socialists, like being a socialist makes you um, a violent terrorist, you know? And, I think that's really important that, that uh, you know, he's trying, they want it to be illegal for you to have political ideas that oppose theirs. And he is doing everything he can to arrest people with uh, political ideas that are opposite of his. And that's a big problem. And, and he's, he's doing the false equivalency thing where he's saying, uh, I told you about Matt Shea, who famously wielded a gun at somebody when uh, during a road rage incident and has written a, written a uh, how-to holy war manual called The Biblical <laughs> Basis for War, he's comparing that to, like you're saying, a bunch of lovable nerds who march every weekend. Right. Like, I, w- I wish, like, Ozzy would, like, dial into a DSA, like, a Spokane DSA Zoom meeting and just be like, wow, like you were saying. She's like, well, a bunch of just, like, mild-mannered poor nerds. That's what right. DSA mostly is. And I, you know. <laughs> And it's like, yeah. how can you how can you pretend that the guy like the guys the the 
Lightfoot militia or the three percenters in North Idaho are in any way equivalent to what's happening with the Spokane chapter of the DSA. The, the threads that he has to pull in that 25 minute presentation where he's like, he's like just grasping at straws. He like talks about Portland. Then he talks about Washington <laughs> DC. And at one point, I don't know if you heard this in the thing, like Daniel Walters, he's, he's showing a, a photo of a woman with a, holding an M4 rifle with an Antifa patch on her chest. And, and, and that's when he's talking about the high speed radio. Yeah. Daniel Walters. Daniel Walters goes, "Is that in Spokane?" And because I, I was, I was looking at it and realizing, like, I don't remember seeing this woman in any of the photos. He's like, "No, no, no, this is DC." And they're like, "Oh, okay." So you're trying to make it seem like this is Spokane. It's not Spokane. This is not Spokane. Like that yeah. that level of hit, I did not see on, among any of the leftist protesters. And actually, the people that I do know that were down, sort of supporting BLM, who are former military. Um, I don't want to call, I actually might have this guy on the, the pod at some point because he has such a fascinating story. He was deployed in Iraq uh-huh. as a troop. And he was one of the guys that was sort of like uh, that first night following the militia around. He was the one that was like, these, these guys are walking around with their fingers on the trigger, which if you, you know, I don't know wh- how you grew up, Jeremy. Like I grew up in the, in the country. I know I've done hunter safety. I know how to wield a gun. Yeah, I, I've, I've done <laughs> if my if my parent if my dad would have seen me walking around Spokane the way that those guys were with their fingers on with just with a gun out in general period yeah. but also yeah. with and my dad my, I think my dad's like a lifetime NRA member like he 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 got like the lifetime membership in the seventies or something you know like he's a gun guy if I would have behaved holding a firearm around people the way that these people were I would not be allowed in the house you know what yeah. I mean. And I, I think it's important to point out what the pur- what their purpose is too. And they're going there looking to either intimidate people away from uh, using their First Amendment rights, or they're actually looking to go there so that something will pop off so that they can shoot somebody. And they say that they're there to protect businesses. Well, if they're there to protect businesses. That means that they're willing to take someone's life to prevent them from stealing a pair of shoes from Nike. Or even just breaking a plate glass window, right? Yeah. That means a plate glass window is worth more than a human life. Right. To them. And, and that's, that's a huge problem. And I mean, I, I understand that it means more to them. It means like their way of life, what they believe in, you know? But yeah. then you still got a question like, why is that what you believe in? Right. Why is why is business and capitalism and all this stuff more important than your neighbors, the human beings that you interact with? Why can't you just show a little bit of love and a little bit of empathy for people that have it harder than you? Right. And you can it's and that and what sort of a society have we built such that this is actually kind of the dominant Narrative. So let's like get away from the, mili- the the militia for a moment. Let's talk about the way just our our basic normie media, both at the the uh, local like KHQ News, for example, and then national media, has to like tie themselves into knots to be like, oh, uh, we don't want black people to die anymore, maybe, but we definitely don't want you throwing bricks through the Nike store window. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like how how fundamentally like just think about that as a as a moral document a, yeah. a a moment in um, in the snapshot of a society yeah. 
Yeah. So you're now out. You don't, uh, you've, you have, you have separately reached out to Douglas County to figure out what it's going to take to pay off these fines just so you don't have to deal with this warrant anymore. You don't even know how your dad's going to get his uh, bail deposit back or what that even looks like. Did you figure that out? Uh, no, I, I, I gave him the money. So I, paid him back. And now I'm trying to, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm probably just going to ask them to move it towards the fines. Yeah. Which makes, so I'd have 500 bucks to, down. Um, I, I want to add this to like, it, it's been so long since I went to court because the actual crime that I committed, which was having heroin on my possession, which shouldn't even be a crime was nine years ago in that time. It's been so long that my attorney that represented me for that case has retired. (laughs) (laughs) It's been that long, you know, (laughs) he doesn't even work anymore. I I don't have an attorney for it yet. That's, and that's actually what I, that's how I wanted to close this. I want to get your thoughts on it. Thinking about the disproportionality of the response, right? Like there was a, a perception that you made a threatening post it was in no way actionable. They're like, this is, isn't actually enough for us to arrest this guy for making a threat. Uh, but this was not, did not rise to that level by their own admission. And so what they chose to do instead was take somebody who has not been in the system in, in seven years and the, the last offense was nine years ago and do something that could have conceivably ruined your entire life, taking you back to square one. So do you want to talk about like what if the criminal legal system is meant to be a system that reforms people. Why are we doing stuff like this? The first thing I would say is that I don't really think that it was even the threat or the, the, what they called the threat or the threatening style post or whatever he said, you know, it was, it was the fact that I have leftist politics and they think that I'm a part of something bigger. And, but I have because I went to uh, Chop in Seattle. Yeah. Because I wanted to see what it was like. A lot of people went there. Podcasters from all over the country went there. You know. <laughs> well, well so- not just leftists. I know. I know conservative people that went to Chop to see it for themselves. Like it's. Yeah. It's. I mean, it was basically it's like how many people went to Zuccotti Park during Occupy, of all yeah. shapes and sizes. That's a similar thing, right? Right. It's not even weird that somebody would go there and they're trying to make it like I was some part in organizing something there or something. And really we were just going there to ask questions to see what people were thinking and see if there was any kind of theory behind it. If anybody had any kind of leadership going on or anything like that, because we were interested in it. And, um, and in the end it really was nothing, you know, there wasn't any real theory behind it. There wasn't any real organizing behind it. It was just a thing that happened and it was a fluke. And then people were like, well, people are just really concerned about how it's perceived in the media and they wanted it to stay. They wanted to not have to deal with police for a while. Yeah. I mean, and when I was there, like, dude, I, I'm walking around and, and uh, people have their, their windows open, you know, and they'd have Black Lives Matter posters in their windows because there's condos all over above all the, all the businesses and everything. And yeah. I would just see people like in their rooms dancing and you know, for the most part, everybody was nice and friendly. There, there was definitely, you know, weirdos. I, I saw a guy uh, pull a knife for no reason. He was having like a mental health break or something. And then people yeah. and just kind of calmed him down and walked him out. 
without yeah, any right. violence and without any police. So yeah. this guy that had a bad moment, instead of if the police were there, he would be in prison. Right. And um, instead he was walked out and he left on his own because people de-escalated that situation. Right. I know that's off topic, but. <laughs> no, it's not. I do really want to know, again, back to like how you said you had to, you know, work your ass off and have some luck break your way yeah. to even climb out of this. How easily could this have put you back in the place you were nine years ago or seven years ago? Okay. So while I was in jail, I, I was terrified. Um, I had no idea what was actually happening because I knew that I wasn't there because of this warrant, you know? Right. And then feds came to talk to me and I refused to talk to them. So I'm like, I have no idea how long I'm going to be here or what is going to happen. I was really freaking out. And then I'm thinking, I have these houses that I'm supposed to paint. If I'm in here for even a week or two, like that's thousands of dollars. Like I work basically probably eight months a year. And I right. usually work you like- You can't paint houses in the middle of the winter. You can't right. paint houses when it's like raining outside yeah. in the spring. And I work 40 to 70 hours a week usually. Wild. And so- yeah. yeah. And, um, uh, I have to save up and hashtag rise and grind, dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I was thinking about all of that and I was thinking about financially what would happen and it, you know, if I could, if I would lose a plate, my place to live and if I was going to lose my business and all this sort of thing, like, um, it, it, it very easily, especially if it if it wasn't for my resilience, you know, yeah, and the fact that I've I've bounced back from so many things, and you know, a, another good point is like my resilience doesn't make me a better person either, you know, like there was something I was raised with or born with or something that gave me that resilience. I didn't do anything to earn it. <laughs> you know, um, So I don't want to praise myself too much for that. I'm just, I'm, I'm lucky that I am resilient. Um, even though mentally it, it can go sour. Um, and definitely while I was in there, like I was really surprised at the decline I felt in my mental health almost immediately because I've been pretty happy at, I've slowed my work down this year a little bit um, yeah. because I make more money per job and I was able to take weekends off almost all year. And uh, so I, I've been in a good place and I have good friends. That's one of the things like being a part of a, a socialist community and everything. Like I have the best friends I've ever had in my life right now. Wow. That's great. And I mean, you just look at what, what people did while I was in, in jail, everybody's scrambling to try to help me and find ways to help me. Like that doesn't happen in most people's life, yeah. but I didn't know any of that was going on. <laughs> you know, I was hoping, but in right. my head, like I'm, I'm thinking all these horrible thoughts, like, Oh, nobody even knows. Or, everybody's going to forget about me and nobody's going to care. And, um, it, it was, it was horrifying. And then I got out and I'm, I'm super paranoid for the first two weeks. Like I, I think I'm on like the third week now. I think I've been out for three weeks or something like that. I think that's right. Yeah. And so, uh, but the first couple of weeks, like in, in the day that the Huffington post article came out, I, I had a black SUV, brand new black SUV parked out front of 
my house with a front window that was so tinted that you couldn't see in it, illegally tinted windows. <laughs> but it was rolled down a little bit and I could see a person in there. And later my, uh, my neighbor told me there was just a guy sitting in there the whole time on his laptop. He was there for like six hours. He was there long enough that he had to move his truck to the shade and was just sitting on a laptop the whole time. And then when I drove, I got two blocks away and there was another one sitting there. So they had me very, very paranoid. It was hard to work. Uh, The job I was working on took me two weeks longer than it should (laughs) have. So, I I mean, just, it was, I was. When you're working like that. So, and just to be clear, when you bid that job out, you gave the people that you're working for a price, you know, that's the price you're going to charge them, whether or not it takes two weeks or four weeks. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. And it was already underbid. Like I gave them a good deal because luckily it was a, it was a liberal organizer in town. And uh, so she, she at least like had some sympathy for me and what I was going through and was on my side when it came to Sheriff Ozzie. Uh, and, 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 you know, when you're in, like you were saying, you couldn't call your dad more than one. So this is the thing, this is where I guess this thing, this sort of like stacks, right? You had, you're like, I get one phone call. So I have to, I have to tell my dad to just keep refreshing the website to see if I get bail. That also means you can't call your clients to be like, Hey, right. You know, you'd be like, Oh, I'm really sick this week, guys. I got, I can't come in or whatever, you know, like whatever sort of normal thing would happen if yeah something comes up, something Sick. Like the, just the, the normal ways that we can sort of move our lives around to make our work sort of fit what's happening in our lives. You can't do when you're behind bars and you don't have access to any sort of communication. Yeah, that was that was a big deal. Like I, I wanted to call my customers and I couldn't. And uh, I, and so I when I got out, there was just a string of uh, messages going like, what is going on? You were supposed to be here. You you were yeah. <laughs> you're working on our house. You're like halfway through with painting our house and you just disappeared on us. What is going on? All your tools are here. You haven't cleaned up. Like (laughs) they're so confused, you know? So yeah, if I wouldn't have made bail, I also would have been sent to Douglas County, apparently, according to them. I still don't believe that, but, (laughs) but I, I would have been sent to Douglas County and who knows how long it would have taken for me to be, uh, transferred. Wow. So I don't exactly know where to, I usually like to maybe, let me just say this. So like back before uh, any of the George Floyd stuff happened and when this was just going to be a little bit more of a, 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 a podcast about people trying to imagine a better world. And it's still going to, it's still that I'm doing a lot more sort of breaking new stuff than I expected. Like I've, I was always asking people like what, what gives you hope and like what sort of vision do you have for the future to sort of like get from where we're at to something that's like remarkably better than what we have now. So like maybe through this process and maybe through the, the solidarity that you found with the people that like helped you out, like what, what gives you hope right now? And like, how do you, how can you see us sort of getting from here to a, a significantly better place? George Floyd gives me hope. Um, when I turned on the news, people were so fed up that they were saying, we have to change this by any means necessary. And it wasn't just one group of people. There was black people, white people, Mexican people, all these different groups of people. And they were all together and fighting on the same side. So there was unity and there still is unity and 
the protests are very mixed. We're not like, oh, these are the black people fighting for their freedom. It, it's like there's white people there, not just white people fighting for the liberation of black people and to stop the oppression, but for their own too. Because yeah. working poor people are also suffering. They're hurting too. And they find strength in helping fight for black people's rights because fighting for black people's rights is also fighting for their own. Yeah. And, um, and it, it needs to be acknowledged that the poor white people go through the same shit. You know, we just spent an hour and a half talking about it. Yeah. About just, just my life and, and the stuff that I had to deal with, you know? And, uh, and so I have at least some understanding of what it's like to go through those things. I just don't have the understanding of what it's like to feel even more hopeless because you know, that there's a possibility that the judge are going to face hates you just because you're black or the cop hates you because you're black. You know, they hate me because I have an attitude about everything, <laughs> but, but I don't, you know, people don't hate me just because I exist. They hate me. For right. That. Think you you get to make you get to make a choice about how you behave, and that's in some regard like affects the way people treat you as a result. But that's all that's an that's a level of auto- autonomy that you have uh, that other people don't when they're just being profiled on the basis of their the color of their skin and stuff. Right, and so uh, but seeing all of those groups of people fighting together, willing to like saying like we are absolutely not going to take this anymore. Like something has to change. And you're seeing because they won't stop protesting, because they're blocking streets, because they're disrupting the flow of capital, they are winning small battles. They are uh, creating reforms and changes that no liberal organizing has ever been able to do. Hmm. And I hope, what gives me hope, is that people will see that and instead of saying, oh, well, they they broke some things or whatever. You know what I mean? I don't think you should hurt people. I want to make that clear. Um, but I, I feel less attachment to uh, property. And I think the fact that people are so willing to do whatever it takes, that is what is causing change. And when people see that start to work, um, hopefully the next time we can just say, we're not going to put up with this. And they say, okay, well, let's sit down at the table and figure out some reasonable solutions, you know, at least, at least, I I think we need a total reform of the entire system and a rewriting of the constitution, but (laughs) I'm not going to argue with some positive reform that'll at least take the boot off of the neck of working people. What a powerful way to end. So yeah, back to the whole bomb throwing thing. Like I feel a little bashful that the entire hour and 25 some minutes of this interview with Jeremy, who's, you know, had a life, an activist, he's a business owner. I could have interviewed him for an hour about all of those things, end up being about the circumstances of his arrest largely because he was labeled by the powers that be as a felon, when in fact he's a lot more than that. So yeah, I kind of feel like I got suckered into it as well. And that doesn't mean you have to like his politics. And maybe some people who are listening to this are like, yeesh, don't like that socialism stuff. That's fine. But is your lack of ease with the concepts of socialism enough that you think it's cool that our law enforcement are just rounding people up on seven-year-old warrants, wasting taxpayer dollars to get a socialist off the streets? 
Is that acceptable to you? It's not to me. And even more deeply, just to reinforce what we talked about in the interview, this could have destroyed his life, right? If he wasn't able to sort of roll with the punches, he could have very easily been homeless again, and there would have been absolutely no justice in that at all. All right, let's put a pin in that for now. This is not the last time we're going to talk to Jeremy Logan. I'm promising right now to at some point have him back on to talk about his organizing work, both with the Tenants Union and with uh, Spokane Democratic Socialists of America, because the work they're doing is actually emancipatory work to both protect the poor from slumlords and also to help just people in general of all races, colors, and creeds live a better life, free from immiseration, free from exploitation, and yeah, free from things like politically motivated imprisonment. All right, y'all have a good week. supposed to be with a few people outside. You know, they show up in the helmets and the black masks, and they've got clubs and they've got everything. Antifa! Antifa!